Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What is up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you. As always, I am so glad to be with you for another installment of this podcast as we examine the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. So if you're with us last time in podcast 48, we talked about what is the kingdom of heaven. In the previous podcast, podcast 47, we talked about the types, the different types of soil. So in Matthew 13, if you've missed that, check those things out. And as always, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. You'll see all the archives through SoundCloud, and you can see the uh, notes that I provide for each and every Bible study lesson to help you and myself go deeper and explore the richness and the power of Jesus's word. That is the key is why you and I listen and do this podcast because we want to learn more about who Jesus is. We want to learn more about his word because we know that the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that when you and I are trained in it in righteousness, that you and I will be reproved. We will be solid thinkers and believers and actors and doers in his name. And that's so, so powerful, my friends. So I'm so glad that you're with me. And as you and I dive into this next installment, we're going to be covering two different things that Jesus does in these two different events. The first thing we're going to be seeing, and this is from Matthew 8, 23 through 34, Mark 4, 35 through chapter 5, verse 20, in Luke 8, 22 through 29. So as you, as you can tell, there's a lot to cover in these two events today. The first one is Jesus calms the storm. So if you remember that story, Jesus gets into the boat with the disciples. They go across the Sea of Galilee and boom, they are hit with this massive storm. So we're going to be talking about that today. And then the second event that we're going to be looking at on today's podcast is the demon-possessed man. There's actually two. Most people always think of one. But one of the Gospels mentions that there's two of them, so explain that. And this man, we're told, I think also including the second person that's in this story, are demon-possessed with thousands of demons, and we know the story that Jesus casts out the demons into the pig. So that's what we're going to be discussing. Now, as I mentioned before, there's so much here, so I'm going to be just jumping around on today's podcast. And so jump on the website, check out the notes. This is podcast 49 and the title is We Are Perishing. And that's really depicted of what we see with the disciples when Jesus was on the boat, as well as these demons who are perishing because they're in total bondage and they were slaves to these demons. So we're going to be looking at the power and the authority of Jesus today. Now, after wrapping up his second Galilean tour, Jesus, remember, goes back home in Mark 3, verse 20. He had a long, intense few days with the crowds. They wouldn't leave him. They wouldn't depart. He taught about the parables, as I mentioned in Matthew 13. He rebukes the religious leaders because they kept challenging him and kept asking for a sign, demanding, pretty much saying that they were trying to corner him and disprove that he was the Messiah. And the terminology used about a sign was more not just like, hey, give us a miracle, like he's a magician or illusionist. It was more of saying, how can you verify with what authority do you actually possess that proves you to be the Messiah? And we know that Jesus didn't fall for it because he was already proving that he was indeed the Messiah, but they continue 
to attack him. And then we're told in Mark 3, verse 21, that he ignores his family's persistence to try to have him removed from the crowds because they thought that he was crazy. So all these things were happening. And now we're told, as I'm going to be reading Matthew 8, 23 through 27, again, you can look at Mark 4, 35 through 41 and Luke 8, 22 through 25. But in Matthew 8, 23, it reads, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus responds to them by asking, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. All right, so like I mentioned before, I'm going to be jumping back and forth throughout the synoptics to kind of get a, big, a bigger and brighter picture of this occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. So in Luke 8.22, we're told that he got into a boat with his disciples. Now remember, Capernaum is right near the Sea of Galilee. And now what they would use back then, the Galileans, are the, the kind of fishing boats, they were quite small. So they measured about 28 feet long and 78 feet wide and were about four feet deep. So these were smaller, lengthier boats that would go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, remember, the Sea of Galilee was about 15 miles long uh, and about eight miles wide. So it was a huge sea. And these boats that were made out of cedar planks and wood were pretty durable until obviously when you hit a massive storm like the disciples were facing right now. Now, in Luke 8.22, we're told that Jesus said, let us go across the other side of the lake. So this is the Sea of Galilee, as I mentioned. Now, remember, what's important about the Sea of Galilee is that it's below sea level and it's surrounded by hills with deep canyons. So the conditions of where the Sea of Galilee is currently, and again, these are the same conditions that they faced back then that they're facing today. The climate and the atmosphere create sudden and dangerous storms. And the disciples knew this, remember, because they grew up around the Sea of Galilee. They're fishermen. So, but Jesus telling them, hey, let's get in the boat. Let's get to the other side. We're exhausted. We're tired. We got things to do. They obey him. But I guarantee that the disciples were suspect because, again, they know of the conditions that they can have these sudden storms. But Jesus said to them, we're going to get to the other side. So no doubt Jesus knew that this deadly storm was coming. But of course, the disciples didn't. But hey, let's get in the boat. Let's listen to our master. And then in Mark 4, 37, we're told a great storm arose. And in Greek, it's more like a hurricane or a furious storm starts brewing and producing massive waves that we're told in Mark 4 beat into the ship. So remember the size, the dimensions I told you about the average Galilean boat. So this boat was about to be just destroyed. It was filling up with water too quickly. But then we're told in Mark 4, 38, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. So Jesus is sleeping on this elevated portion of the boat. And the contrast is that the disciples who were scared out of their minds because they're about to die are looking over at Jesus finally and, and saying, we need to do something. Now, Jesus, which is fascinating to me, is sleeping in these conditions. One, it points to the fact that he was in fact exhausted as a human being, right? In human flesh, that he was resting because of all the things he had been doing previously in the ministry. But it also points to the fact that he's rest assured that his heavenly father is in control, that Jesus, as we know, is going to do, he's going to be able to withstand and rebuke and put into place the storm. So in Matthew 8, 25, the disciples, they just shout out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
Now, remember, Mark gets his account directly from Peter. And we are told, according to Mark's account, that the disciples said to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, the storm is not what awakes Jesus, right? But their cry to him for help because they were about to perish. Now, remember, these were experienced fishermen who were on board and were probably doing all that they could try to do as the storm came upon them. They're bailing out the water, you can imagine, stirring and rowing as hard as they could, working as a team, trying to maneuver out of these waves to get to the other side. Remember, miles upon miles, so it would average take them a few hours to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they finally stopped trying. And what do they do? They say, we can't save ourselves, so let's cry out for Jesus to help us. Now, in Matthew 8, 26, Jesus responds by asking this question, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So before rebuking the storm, Jesus rebukes the disciples. And what does he rebuke them about? He rebukes them once again because of their lack of faith. See, Jesus was more troubled by their fear and lack of faith than he was of the waves crashing onto the boat. Now, if you recall, Jesus was the one that told them to get into the boat, which they did, and then he said that we will get to the other side of the lake. Now, they've posed the question almost like, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? As though like they're going to die and Jesus is not. Almost to say like, Jesus, we know that you can't die, you won't die, because we believe you're the Son of God, but we're going to die in the process. The point being is that is this, is that Jesus said we're going to get to the other side. And the disciples were not believing in him at that moment. And of course, I look, I'm not belittling the disciples and saying, oh my gosh, you're so right, God. They have so little faith. Those puny little disciples, I would have done far better. No, I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, I try to envision myself. What would I have done sitting in that boat? I probably would have done the same thing, you know, freaking out. And of course, me being freaked out of just, you know, being in water that's tossing around like that and what kind of creatures are below but they, they stopped believing in Jesus, what he, what he said, that they would get to the other side. And I think that's insightful, my friends, because we oftentimes, when God tells us to do something, sometimes we pursue it wholeheartedly. We jump right in there without question. But then as time goes on and things are kind of unfolding or maybe not panning out the way we thought, we start freaking out. So now we're told in Matthew 8, 26, that Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea. Mark 4, 39 puts it this way. He says, peace, be still. And then Luke 8, 24, and there was calm. So Jesus literally ordered the winds and the sea to be muzzled. That same force to silence nature is the same force and authority we're going to see in a minute in the next event when Jesus casts out the legion of demons. Now, Mark 4, verse 40, Jesus asks another question. He asks two, matter of fact, why are you so afraid and have you still no faith? So remember, the disciples were showing fear. They were cowards, despite the fact that Jesus was in the boat with them. But they acknowledged Jesus and tried to awaken him to see what he would do. This question, have you still no faith, asked by Jesus was to point out to the disciples that they should know by now, though, that he is the Son of God and that they don't have to worry. Now, notice in Luke 8, 25, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the water obey him? Now, if you recall, the Jews who learned the scriptures knew that the only one who had power over the winds and the sea was who? Was God Almighty. This was no Greek legend. 
They saw with their own eyes that Jesus controlled nature itself. They witnessed that firsthand in the boat. In the, in the boat. They're about to die, and now everything's calm. Everything's peaceful. So this sudden realization caused more fear, this awe. They were struck with fear in awe of who God is when he did what he did. You know why? Because I believe that many of these disciples, what flashed before them was Psalm 65 or 7 says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples? Psalm 89 verse 9, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107 verse 29 says, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So my friends, you can imagine that the disciples were thinking about this and they went from being cowards filled with fear in the midst of the storm to standing in awe and reverence at Jesus's authority to calm the winds and the sea. What is our takeaway? What is a lesson We have to, my friends, respect and honor God and have total abandonment of ourselves and know that when God tells us to do something, we do it because we love him. We do it because he's got our back, that he's going to see it through. And we have to believe that. And that was a great lesson that the disciples received on the boat. Now we look at our second event of Jesus casting out a legion of demons. There are three accounts of synoptics in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, Mark 5, 1 through 20, Luke 8, 26 through 39. Now because of time, let me just read Matthew chapter 8's account. It says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarians, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told every thing, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, obviously, Mark 5, that account is way more detailed. So what I'm going to do again, jump around throughout the three different synoptic gospels to to give us more insight. So in Matthew 8, 28, remember we're told it was a country of the Gadarians. But in Mark 5, verse 1 in Luke 8, 26... It says that it was the country of the Gerasians. Now, I'm going to kind of break this down and give some clarification because these are known as apparent contradictions. So a lot of secularists, a lot of atheists, agnostics, people that are skeptical to the scripture accounts, they'll use these type of passages to show what they believe to be contradictions. Therefore, the Bible is not true. But let me explain um, that this is actually not a contradiction. So now Matthew records the region better known in the southeast of the Sea of Galilee, as a city of Gadara, and Mark and Luke reference the smaller territory of Gersa that was probably owned by the city of Gadara. So it made it interchangeable. These were both Hellenistic cities that were near Syria. So Gersa was a better known location in terms of name to Mark's audience, hence that's why they explained it the way that they did. So now we're told in in Matthew 8, 28, that two two demon-possessed men met him out of the tombs. We're told, though, in Mark 5, 2, 
that there was one man with an unclean spirit. And then Luke 8, 27, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, again, people say, see, once again, when you put these three gospels account, accounts together, there's a contradiction here, just like we saw with Gadara and Gersa. But guess what? When there's when there's two people, there's also one. So Matthew mentions that there's two, but Mark and Luke just focus in on the one. Nothing else is mentioned about this other demon-possessed man. But as I did research and I've looked into this, it is assumed that this man too was restored just like his counterpart. But for whatever reason, Mark and Luke just focus in on the one. And Matthew, who does mention the second, doesn't even mention about him being cleansed. But I tend to believe that if Jesus healed the one, his colleague, his companion was healed as well. So in Matthew 8, 28, we're told that this man was coming out of the tombs and he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, remember, Jews regarded tombs as unclean, so they wouldn't even go in that area. One, it was a Gentile area. They knew about this reputation of this demon-possessed man and his colleague. And anyone who was around tombs were also considered to be unclean and pure as well. So this man, we're told in Mark 5, 3, that was demon-possessed by these thousands of demons, no one could bind him. We're also told in Mark 5, verse 4, that he had the strength to subdue people. So this possessed man had super strength, and he was likened to an untamed animal. That's kind of what we pick up in the Greek. In Luke 8, 27, uh, he had wore no clothes. He broke shackles and pieces, according to Mark 5, verse 4, um, in Luke 8, 29, he was driven by the demon into the desert oftentimes. In Mark 5, verse 5, night and day he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. So these demons would just drive this, this individual mad and would force him to repeatedly harm himself. And in the Greek, and looking into it, it's almost like performing pagan practices at nighttime. So these two men that were possessed by these thousands of demons show the kind of power in rulership that Satan can have over people with his minions when they allow it. Remember, we're told in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So no question that this man was under the spell of Satan and his minions. So these men were given great physical strength as a result, but were in total bondage to Satan. Now the graveyard and the tombs, I believe, kind of symbolize the spiritual deadness, if you will, of that region and the inability for people to control these demons. It points out the weakness, the lostness, the blindness that the people had throughout this area of Decapolis. But Jesus, remember, came to seek and to save that which is lost in Luke 19.10. He doesn't just go to the Samaritan woman in John 4. He doesn't just interact with a centurion and speak the word and heal his slave, but Jesus will also go to a desolate island that's unclean and impure, that's dominated by thousands of demons to bring deliverance. In Mark 5 or 6, we're told that this man and his colleague, they see Jesus from afar. He comes and he cries out and he falls down before him in Luke 8, 28. So we see this submission that takes place. In Mark 5 verse 8, Jesus says, 
come out, you unclean spirit. And then Luke 8, 29 says, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now the legion of demons, notice, doesn't just immediately flee this man. There is a slight delay and people may wonder, well, why didn't they just come out like we see in other situations? Is it because the the massive power that Jesus maybe had to continue to endure through it? I believe what Jesus was doing here was he wanted to communicate with the demons, wanted to demonstrate his power, no question, not just over one demon, but but to show his power over the thousands that were possessing him. Because we're told in Matthew 8, 29, the demons respond by saying, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, again, this speaks to why there's the delay, because in no other passages do we see this type of conversation that Jesus actually has with demons. So this is interesting that the demons are having a conversation with Jesus and that they're aware of their of their judgment, right? The day of doom that will come. Another thing I want to mention here that's very interesting is this phrase, what have you to do with us? This almost implies when you're looking at it in the Greek, that the demons were attempting to fight against the authority of Jesus. And of course, they were having no success because then in Mark 5 or 7, when it says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So the demons were even in this process, this slight delay of casting them out of this man, were even inciting God to fight off Jesus almost. So isn't that interesting? The demons know they don't have authority over Jesus. And so they try to um, incite God to almost push back Jesus. So Jesus responds to them by asking a question, what is your name? And they said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. We're told in Luke 8, 30, Mark 5, verse 9 puts it this way. My name is Legion, for we are many. I believe these demons were trying to intimidate Jesus. They thought that they could try to scare him or break him. This was an intimidation tactic. Of course, it doesn't work. Jesus, by asking the name, he wants to know how bad the possession was for this man in a demonic state. Why? Because he cares. And he wanted to put these demons on notice to let them know that they can't do anything to get out of this. So they beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss, notice in Luke 8, 31. So the demons knew not only of their coming doom, but they also knew this place known as the abyss, which was probably a holding cell awaiting final judgment. In Luke 8, 32, it says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Now this was Decapolis. And most of the residents there uh, who were Gentiles, they bred pigs. And remember, pigs were unclean animals to the Jews, according to Leviticus 11, verse 7. So the demons, don't they don't want to be idle. They would rather reside in an animal than be dormant. So that's another thing that's a little insightful about demons is they want to be possessing people. That's not to say that all demons can possess people who give themselves over the over uh, to the darkness that are not and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it does give us insight that demons want to continue to advance the dominion of darkness. So Jesus gives permission, we're told in Mark 5, 13, Luke 8, 32, and says to them, go, Matthew 8, 32. So this demonstrates Jesus' spiritual authority over demons. Now, commentaries differ as to why Jesus let the demons go into the pigs in the first place and not send them into the abyss where they didn't want to go. Now, for one, the outward casting of demons into pigs publicly verified the exorcism of the men. Secondly, that the destruction of the pigs was like an act of punishment due to the wicked and impure motives of the herdsmen. And finally, I believe that Jesus didn't cast out the demons and send them to abyss because his final authority over Satan 
and Satan's kingdom would later come on the cross. According to Colossians 2, verse 15, we're told, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So that would later come on the cross. Now, now we see here in Mark chapter 5, verse 13, that the pigs go off the cliff and they drown in the sea. So remember, the religious leaders were claiming that Jesus was possessed by Satan by this very act of these demons being out of the man and into these pigs shows that Jesus has the authority, has the power, and that he is not possessed by Satan. But also losing these 2,000 pigs in this Hellenistic region was a direct punishment, as I mentioned, to their sinful lifestyle. So what do they do? We're told in Matthew 8.33, they flee into the city about what had just occurred, and they start begging Jesus to get lost in Matthew 8.34. And we're told in Luke 8.37 that they were seized with great fear. So apparently these people didn't care about what had just occurred. They only cared about their business interests and they were scared of the supposed magic power of Jesus. So they're begging him to leave them alone, get out of their region, because I think it speaks to the utter darkness of that region. It wasn't just these two men that were possessed and doing crazy things for a long period of time that nobody could control, but it also speaks to the darkness and the deadness of these people. They refused to repent. They refused to take this as an opportunity to repent of their sins. They would rather have their pigs for business than be about the business of Jesus as their savior. Now, here's what's interesting as we close out this this story. In Mark 5, verse 15, we're told that the one who had had this legion, he was sitting there, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. So this man who was possessed by these thousands of demons is now doing everything that he couldn't do before. He was in his right mind, yet we're told before he was screaming and he was cutting himself. We're now told that he was clothed, but before he was naked. We were told before that he was running off into the desert, out of control, breaking the shackles, couldn't keep him contained, and now he was sitting there in his right mind. That is, my friends, a beautiful picture of what Jesus can do. And then we're told that Jesus, after doing this, he gets into the boat and the man who had been possessed with demons, he begged him, would, could you, you would do the same thing, wouldn't you? If Jesus comes into your life and he frees you and he brings you peace and stability and he comforts you and he shows you the kind of love and attention that nobody had been showing you before. And so, of course, he wants to go and be with Jesus. But notice we're told that Jesus doesn't permit him to go, but says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so then we're told in Mark 5, verse 20, and he went away and he began to proclaim in the capitalists how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So the restored man reportedly begs, right, Jesus to go and be a disciple of his, but Jesus feels it's more important for him to remain as a disciple there into capitalist, to his own people and to reach his own countrymen. And the people hear about the testimony of this man. And rather than reject Jesus' message, they start believing it and they start marveling at the power of Jesus. My friends, these were two great stories that I pray that you would take to heart. Just remember when Jesus says, let's go do such and such, believe that he will make it happen. Don't deny that. Don't disbelieve it. Don't doubt it for a second, but believe in faith. And also, when there's bondage in our life or when there's someone that you right now are maybe dealing with in your life right now that is filled with bondage, that they're in sin, that they need Jesus, know that God has the power that he can do it. So embrace that, my friends. Continue to stand strong. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on the next podcast. God bless you. 
For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.